A reading from the book of John, chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. If you called them gods to whom the word, the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do, not, uh, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am, son of, I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. The word of the Lord. A few weeks ago, I was visiting my oldest son at college, and while I was there, one of his classmates had a sister who was visiting. And his sister was in high school and is planning on being pre-med when she gets to college. So she wanted to sit in on a class, and they had a class uh, in genetics. And she sat in on that class and was utterly confused. I asked her about the class, and she had no idea what they were talking about. So it raises the question, is it the teacher's fault or her fault? Why did she not understand? Was it a bad teacher explaining things that the student could understand or was it a bad student? And of course the answer is it's neither of those things. It makes sense when somebody in high school uh, going into a sort of an advanced college class midway through the semester would not have the building blocks to know what was going on. The issue wasn't that there was anything wrong with the teacher or the class, but, uh, but this was just very complex material and she needed to learn certain things first before she was ready for that. Yeah, the second commandment of the Ten Commandments is a warning not to make images of God. There's human tendency to want a God that we can understand, a God that we have some control and some kind of connection with, but the warning is inevitably um, you will misunderstand. You will create a God that is not God in all of his greatness, and, and that will itself be a problem. And so instead, we're invited to be disciples, to come and listen and to learn, because God, who is all-wise and is 
uh, eternal and all of these things that are more than we could simply grasp. It takes time of, of studying and learning and discipleship to be able to take these things in. And so even someone that is sort of uh, has some roots spiritually or even understanding the Bible, there's still much that they may misunderstand. And so we have another one of these passages, an encounter with Jesus, where people who have a good amount of learning have an expectation that they could understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. But what we see in the passage is Jesus is even greater than they can discern, and therefore they're at risk of rejecting him because they don't understand. So in verse 24, this group comes to him, and they, they want to challenge him to teach plainly. They said, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. The, the word Christ is a Greek word. Uh, the Hebrew word is Messiah. It's God's anointed, God's Savior, uh, the one that God would one day promised would come and deliver us. Their question is, if you are claiming to be that person, tell us plainly. They're trying to get Jesus to sort of answer with a yes or no answer. And Jesus could have said, yes, I am the Christ. But in affirming what's fundamentally true, he would have misled them by not pushing them on what they think it means that he is the Christ, because that's one of the issues here. They know enough, but they don't know enough. And so in verse 25, he says, I told you, and you do not believe. So Jesus is not trying to trick anyone. He's not trying to keep anything hidden. He's coming to make known, but he's making known things that perhaps uh, we are not ready or able to yet understand. And so the simple thing for Jesus would have been to say, yes, I am the Christ. Instead, he makes this hard situation even harder uh, in verse 30 by saying, I and the Father are one. And so now not only is he saying that he's the Christ, but he is saying that he's a human being, but he's also divine. The first 300 years of the church were spent trying to make sense of what that meant, constantly coming across it, it can't mean this, so that's a problem, and it can't mean this, and coming up with the language to articulate, this is what we think it means, even though we don't fully understand it. Jesus drops that at this moment. Something hard to understand, but something so profound that if we enter into it and allow him to then teach us what that means, it brings us to a place that we otherwise couldn't have gotten to. And so they come with a simple challenge, tell us if you're the Christ. And he says, look, I've already been telling you, but here's something that, that is even maybe harder for you to understand. Uh, I am the very son of God. I am a human, but I'm also divine. Um, that claim is really hard for us to understand, to make sense of. Um, but the church throughout the ages has realized that there's something in that that opens a possibility that, that wasn't available to us before. And therefore, as we look at this passage today, rather than my sort of teaching the doctrine of the person of Christ, uh, I'm not assuming all of you know it or you understand it, but I would invite you to reach out to me if you want me to explain it to you. If I'm more trustworthy than whatever you find on YouTube, I'm happy to meet with you. Um, but assuming that Christianity teaches that Jesus is divine and human, what are the implications for us? How does that change things? And I want to talk about three implications. The first is, is this uh, environment, this invitation to see and understand. So, so one of the implications are we are meant to see and understand something. 
So the end of John's gospel, not the very last chapter, but, the, but the, in John 20, John, who writes this, says, you know, Jesus did many signs, but I have written these so that you will know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life. So John says, I've written the particular signs that I've written so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. So the goal is that we would have life. But John is saying, but there's something about these signs that tell the story. So Jesus' answer is, I've already told you that I'm the Christ. He's also saying, but you've already seen that I am. And so in John's gospel, one of the ways John tells his story is with two witnesses. The human witness, John the Baptist, so John the Baptist is not the same John as the one who writes the gospel. There's John the Baptist, the human witness, and there's God the Father, the divine witness. And so John the Baptist was a figure that in his generation was recognized as a prophet, a messenger of God. He fit the type. He was like Elijah. And John the Baptist was very clear. God has told me Jesus was sent by him, and therefore we need to listen to him. So in verse 41, those who believe find themselves saying, everything John said about this man is true. So people that already believe that John is a prophet, as so many people did, realize John's message was pointing to Jesus. So that's one confirmation. But what Jesus says is, I've come with a message from God, but you're not listening, you're not understanding what I'm saying about what I'm revealing about the Father. So let's go the other direction. Here's what the Father is telling you about me. And so in verse 25, he says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So if you need confirmation, you're not sure my message is trustworthy, you don't know what to make of me, listen to John, clearly the prophet raised up by God. Listen to the Father whose work is bearing witness through the creative power of, of things that nobody can do. And the message is not his saying, you should be impressed with me because of my miracles. In fact, the Bible warns us that sometimes people come um, with the intention to deceive and they will have the appearance of doing some amazing things. And in our generation, the technology makes it possible that it could appear that any person could do anything. It's not that we're supposed to be impressed by these miracles. Jesus is saying, uh, you're supposed to recognize, first of all, that God is uniquely at work with my arrival. But also, if you know God, if you know the scriptures, if you discern God's voice, you should be seeing the fulfillment as God is showing that the scriptures are being fulfilled in the generation, uh, that, that I'm, I exist in. So it's not simply, I've done powerful things, you need to trust me. He's saying, what is God doing since I've arrived? Well, John says he's done many signs, but he records seven. So you read the scriptures and they say one day God will come to his weak people in a period of, of their being weak and demoralized and there will be a sign of prosperity and abundance. It will be like flowing wine, a sign of wealth, a sign of riches. And so Jesus begins in Cana of Galilee, a guest at a wedding where they run out of wine. And he turns water into wine, not simply as a, as a, as a trick to wow people, but he leaves them not necessarily knowing what happened with such an abundance of this of the best wine that they tasted, that there's more than enough, not only for, the, for those who are attending the wedding, but for the whole city. Uh, God seems to be showing that, that the time of, of, of what happens when the Messiah comes, well, the sign of his blessing is coming in Jesus. 
uh, the prophets who talk about God's weak people who are unable to follow him. It's like they're dead, they're helpless. One day God will come to gather them. And so Jesus finds a man who is unable to walk, who's hoping that this pool he's near would heal him, and yet he could never get into the pool in time because everybody else jumps in when the waters are stirred up. And Jesus heals him. Here's somebody who is excluded from God's people, who wasn't able to come to the temple to worship, who couldn't follow if Jesus said, follow me, and he heals him. And John talks about people being in darkness. And Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And so Jesus comes to a man who was born blind and he opens his eyes. Jesus who said to the religious leader Nicodemus, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. Jesus is saying, if you understood God in the scriptures, you'd be watching what is happening and, and pay attention to what I'm saying. But if you don't believe me, pay attention to what the father who you do believe in is showing you through my ministry, see what is happening and understand the answer to your question has already been given. Tell us plainly if you are the Christ, and Jesus would say, search the scriptures, <laughs> and then watch, and you will understand. And so um, Jesus, uh, in verse 38, even if you do not believe me, and you should, because I've been sent by the Father, I'm speaking the truth, even if you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and that I am in the Father. Jesus has not come to confuse us. He's not come to, to give us something so complicated that we're left helpless to understand. He's coming so that we would know and understand. But what he wants us to know and understand is that the Father is in him. He is in the Father. These things are connected. And in the wisdom of, of God's plan and making sure that, that he helps us in our weakness, you know, some of us believe in God, um, but what does that mean? There are so many religions, there are so many various claims. What am I supposed to believe? What am I supposed to know? And what Jesus is saying is, well, if you're looking for the Father, the Father has sent the Son so that you will know what that God is like. And so if you're overwhelmed with how big and complex it is, here's something simple. Look at Christ and you will see the character of God, his justice, his mercy, his power, his glory, his promise, his hope, all of these things. And how are we to live? will follow him. But on the other hand, there's a lot of people that would say, well, I don't necessarily believe in God, and I don't want to believe in God, um, but I want to have the best of human life, and therefore Jesus is one of the most compelling figures of history, of somebody whose life and teaching had an impact. And so, so that person is, is given, uh, there's somebody sent, well, follow Jesus, but Jesus is going to say, but if you really want to know the nature of how to live, uh, at some point, if you follow me, you are going to have to encounter God. And so uh, Jesus being sent by the Father creates possibilities for us in trying to figure out who is God, what are we to believe, um, how do we follow. There's something unique in having this divine human being, Jesus Christ. And if you have trouble believing him, Search, the, search what the scriptures say, uh, what are the signs of the Father, and if you have trouble believing in the concept of God, draw near to Jesus, the great teacher. Um, but, but what's clear is whichever access point, whichever thing you take hold of at any particular time, uh, as you follow Jesus, he is going to, to broaden your perspective. He is going to make sure um, that you uh, come to know what it means to be human, what it means to believe in God. 
And by the way, if I need to switch microphones, just give me a signal. I'll keep going and see if the, uh, the buzzing goes away. So here's a second implication of Jesus' claim that he is divine and human. Uh, the first is that we're supposed to see and understand something because of that. But secondly, we're to hear and follow. So we're to see, we're to hear, we're to understand, we're to follow. So we're to see and understand. Secondly, now we're to hear and to follow. Now, the context of the passage is important, where um, they come with a question, are you the Christ? And given the, the, the recent history for them, given the political situation, um, one of the things that, that Jesus is doing is making clear whatever assumption they, that they have about what it means to be the Christ, he's going to expand that. So one of the things that the passage tells us is that the time of this conversation was the Feast of Dedication. Uh, that's what they called it in the first century. In 21st century, Jewish people called it Hanukkah. So in the 150 to 200 years before Jesus, there was an important event where this Greek Syrian leader desecrated the temple and God raised up this figure, Judas Maccabeus, who came as a deliverer and he was God's anointed who was raised up and and now in the commemoration of the event, they're asking, are you the Christ? They probably could not have helped, but, but meant something. Are you another Judas Maccabeus? Are you another hero that God has raised up to overthrow the powers that are oppressing us? And they wouldn't have been wrong to assume that, but they would be wrong uh, uh, to understand what it means that Jesus is the Christ. And then also this happens to, the conversation we're told happens at Solomon's Colonnade. Now that's probably simply reporting where the conversation happened. But as you're reading through John, hearing about Solomon, the son of David, the one who built the temple, God's house, the first temple, and now they're at the second temple. Um, as a reader, there are these clues here. It's Hanukkah. They're at Solomon's Colonnade. There's something about the the background that would lead us to, to think when they said, tell us if you are the Christ, they had a very focused version of saying, are you the king that God is going to raise up to deliver us and rule over us? And they would be right in assuming that, but they would be wrong in assuming they understand what it means to be a king. And so it's interesting that Jesus begins to answer them where they say in verse 24, if you were the Christ, tell us plainly. In verse 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And he starts to talk about shepherding again. And if you were with us two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of John 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. The, the good shepherd lays down his life. And sometimes what you miss is by the end of the chapter, a lot of time has passed. It's now a different time of the year. It's a different festival. But he's still talking about shepherding. Why is he talking about shepherding? Well, um, Modern people may think of shepherding as just a, sort of an agricultural quirk, and so it's a nice metaphor for religion, just as the sheep follow the shepherd, so we're to follow our divinely appointed leader. But in the Bible, um, shepherding is, is, is given to us as a subversive countercultural model for what God's vision for kingship looks like. So in Genesis 1, God creates Adam and Eve, uh, says they're in his image, and he gives them dominion. So they are to rule over the earth, but as image bearers, in the same way that God uses his power, his glory, his justice, his wisdom for the life-giving, flourishing of all things. Adam and Eve had that task on the earth. They were given dominion. They were to rule. This was meant to be a good thing. 
But when they turned from God in Genesis 3, we find that then the nature of human rule becomes corrupted. And so the first people born in the Bible, Cain and Abel, in Genesis 4, we're told Abel was a keeper of the sheep. He's a shepherd. And Cain, there's something envious about him, and he's warned, you're being tempted. Don't give in. But he gives in. The Bible opens of the two people first born on earth. One kills the shepherd. That's the beginning of the Bible. And then we find that as you go through Genesis, uh, Joseph, who is another story of somebody who was betrayed by his brothers, is sold to Egypt. He winds up being quite prominent, having great power. Um, but it's during a famine, and he wants to bring his family to Egypt. And he says to his family, make sure that Pharaoh knows that you're shepherds, because the Egyptians will look down on shepherds. So they'll give you your own land, and you can do your own thing. And then you pick up in the next book, just chapters later, Exodus, and it's generations later. And now you have a different Pharaoh whose corruption is expressing itself in that he's enslaving people. And he's killing uh, male children to make sure that a growing population doesn't overpower them. And this odd quirk in the story, Moses, who's born a, a descendant of Abraham and Jacob, uh, grows up in Pharaoh's household. He grows up in the household of this corrupt leader. But rather than remaining and becoming one of the sons of Pharaoh who oversees some province, he leaves and he becomes a shepherd. And then God, who will confront this Pharaoh to bring his people out, calls the shepherd to say, I am the one who will deliver my people and lead them, but you are the human being who will go before and be my prophet and be my voice. So at the end of Moses' life, he says, one day when you're in the land, you're gonna look around and see how the nations have kings and you're gonna want a king like they have and God will grant you a king, but may the king not be like the kings of the nations. And he highlights three things. He says, make sure your king doesn't build a huge army. Make sure the king does not acquire lots of possessions. Make sure the king doesn't surround himself with a harem. And modern people would then say, why else would anyone want to be a king? Like all that responsibility and all that hard work and uh, you don't get to go around and destroy your enemies, and you don't get to have everybody look at you because you've had the best wristwatch or whatever the case is. Well, why would anyone want to do that? And the model is, well, that's why people seek leadership. That's why people seek power, wealth, pleasure. Um, that's what the world always does. Uh, but, but if our people will have a king, that person will be a shepherd. And so the person is somebody who will lead people who will protect them, who will care for them. It's a very different model. And so in the days of Samuel, you could read in First and Second Samuel, the day comes where they say, we want a king. And there's Saul, who looks like a king. He's tall, he's handsome, he's a warrior, and he doesn't wind up being a good king. And we meet David when David is a young boy and David is a shepherd. And he's the one who has the heart for God. And he's the one who in Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. David was not perfect. But David was the one who knew God is the shepherd of this community. All power is his, all glory is his. My job is to follow him in caring and leading and protecting my people. So now they say to Jesus, are you the Christ? And he says, I've told you, I'm the good shepherd. In Ezekiel, when the shepherds are rebuked, Ezekiel is talking about the kings that are now like the kings of the nations. Jesus is saying, if you understand the scriptures, which cannot be broken, and that's what he points to in this passage, 
you should recognize the voice of God. You should see the consistency of my teaching. But even if you don't, look at the signs of the Father. The story is being completed. And so he says, my sheep know my voice. And then in verses 34 to 36, he says, is it not written in your law? And so he refers to the scripture. He is coming to fulfill it. He's coming to realize that the scripture that cannot be broken. Um, and so what they do in their misunderstanding in verse 33, he says, uh, they say that, uh, so they pick up rocks to stone him. He says, what work did I do? Watch what I'm doing. Have I done anything that demonstrates anything contrary to the way of God? No, it's not because of your works. It's because of this teaching. Verse 33, you being a man, make yourself God. And they pick up rocks to stone him. And here's the shepherd who comes to call the sheep. And they're confused and they're angry and they're not listening. And they want to kill the shepherd. Jesus, at this time, saying, I and the Father are one. He elsewhere says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, what they got wrong, verse 33, you being a man, make yourself God. They're missing the importance of what Jesus is doing. Jesus, being God, has made himself man. They don't get it. And so Jesus is not going to answer the question so they could be satisfied. He's saying God is doing something where the whole of Scripture is now being fulfilled in this generation, and you can't see it. It's too big. It's too great. But you should discern the voice of the same shepherd, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the God of David. My works and my message are consistent. And those who belong to God will discern that at some point. And so what do they do? They pick up stones to kill him, and they don't at this point, but they do wind up conspiring by handing him over to Caesar. Caesar, who within a generation would send an army in to destroy the temple, as if to say, you chose the wrong partner. <laughs> There's Caesar, the king of this world, and, and you hate him, but you're impressed by him. And then there's Jesus who comes without an army, and he comes without a harem, and he comes without possessions, but he comes to gather God's people and to heal them and to feed them, and you wind up handing him over to Caesar. And one of the reasons that it's important to understand this claim of Jesus, that he is both human, born uh, of a, a, a woman, uh, and yet divine, the very son of God, is because when we understand what God is doing in fulfilling scripture, uh, sometimes we think of God as the angry father who in his justice needs to come and destroy people. But Jesus is the meek and kind son who comes to get in between us, the sinful people, and God, the angry father. And that's a mischaracterization of the nature of the father who, yes, is just and is angry with sin and will judge. But you don't pit the son against the father as having very different temperaments. But Jesus is saying it's the same God, the same voice, the same shepherd. I have come to call you, and you're picking up stones to reject me. God has not come to reject you. You have rejected God. God has not come to judge and kill you. You have judged and killed God. But here's the thing. In my handing myself over, the scriptures are being fulfilled in that by killing the shepherd, uh, the shepherd will bear that sin, will bear that hostility, will bear, bear that corrupt judgment so that the shepherd could then give life to the sheep. The shepherd could call the sheep. 
the odd thing is in the very act of rejecting Jesus, they fulfill the scriptures without knowing it. So you go back to the same location, Solomon's uh, portico or colonnade in the book of Acts chapter three. Now Jesus has been raised. Now the spirit has been sent and Peter stands up in the same place where this conversation in John 10 happened. Um, and he says to that crowd, he says in verse 15, he says, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So Peter's theology, uh, the author of life himself came and you rejected him, you killed him, but the father raised him up. He says, I know you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But then in verse 18, he says, but what God foretold by the mouths of the prophet that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And that's the thing that they don't yet understand, that the scriptures are fulfilled finally in God subjecting himself to our rejection. And by Jesus bearing death, humiliation, corruption, God puts an end uh, by bringing the final judgment so that God's people then don't need to be judged. They don't need to be rejected, but they could rather hear the voice of the Father and believe that the Father loves them. So Jesus says, the Son was not sent into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so what they would not have seen at that point, what they didn't understand, once the scriptures were fulfilled, many of those who in John 10 didn't understand and rejected him and plotted against him, some of them may have been part of that corrupt trial where he was handed over. But in the book of Acts, many of them come to faith. And when Jesus says, the sheep know my voice, he's not saying, God's people are immediately identifiable at all times everywhere. There are those who now believe and those who don't, and it's fixed. What he's saying is, God is concerned to call all people to himself. But it is clear that those who belong to him will recognize that voice. And it's not an audible voice, but there should be something when you read the Bible where, where it strikes at who you are as a human being. Your ears open up and you say, this, this sounds familiar, this sounds right. This sounds like it will give me what the world is not giving me. And so uh, our job is not to, to make a decision about who currently believes and who doesn't believe, or to evaluate whether or not things don't currently make sense. Our job is to discern the voice of the Good Shepherd who announces good news and invites all people to come and to receive forgiveness and grace and life. And then the hope is that even if you're having trouble with it, if you keep following, if you keep drawing nearer, if you keep looking at the scriptures, if you keep praying, if you, if you keep saying, Lord, um, show me, then you will perhaps discern that you belong to the flock of God. And for those of you who believe that you are, who are Christian, there are always periods that we go through where we can't see God. We can't hear God's voice, but we're told that the, the shepherd still leads us. And so, um, Keep seeking God, keep following, and, and trust that on the other side of that, God will lead you through. And so that's where I want to leave you with this last section. I've talked about the importance of seeing and understanding, the importance of hearing and following. But now here's a third implication of Jesus being human and divine. We are to receive and rest. We are to see, hear, and receive. We are to understand, follow, and rest. So see and understand, hear and follow, now receive and rest. By Jesus disclosing to them that he is the very manifestation of God, he's been sent to call them, that he is one with the Father and he invites us to be one with him. 
he's talking about what God intends to give. And so in verses 28 and 29, he says, I give them eternal life. He says, my father who has given them to me. The father and the son are working together to give life to God's people. And so in our church, um, when members take vows, if you join our church or any other um, PCA, Presbyterian Church in America church, um, the third question we ask you is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of God and savior of sinners? And you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. So there, do you believe he's the Christ? Do you believe he's the son of God? But what is faith? It's receiving and resting upon him alone for salvation. And many Christians understandably um, look at the fullness of what we're to have in Christian life. We're to be obedient, we're to be disciplined, we're to be fervent. And, and there's a discomfort with saying, but wait a second, it's all of grace that, that I have nothing unless God gives it to me. Isn't that gonna discourage lazy Christians who do nothing? Um, and, and the reason that we wanna make sure that we have that focus. You know, Jesus in this says, well, look at me. The Father is in me, I am in the Father. And from that, all things flow. Is obedience important? And of course it is. It's an important part of Jesus' teaching. But you don't give God obedience and you don't rest in it, you don't trust it. There's a danger in our obedience and we need. Why would we not, if Jesus speaks the truth and gives us commands, if we trust him, why would we not do what he gives us to do? But there's a danger that we're going to say, I'm going to give my obedience sacrificially to God so that God will one day give me what I need. And I'm going to trust in it. I'm going to trust that if I do the right things and avoid the wrong things, God will welcome me. And Jesus says, that's fine until that moment of disobedience. And then where do you stand with God? Are you trusting in your obedience? Be obedient, but don't give obedience to God as though he's going to pay you for it. Don't trust in your obedience. Are we to be disciplined? Of course we're to be disciplined. We're to read the Bible, we're to pray, we're to be faithful in all things. Is discipline important? It's very important. Your discipline is not something that you're giving to God so that God will bless you. And your discipline is not the thing to trust in. How do I know that I'm okay with God? Because I read the Bible every day for the last three months. What happens at the end of that week where you didn't read the Bible? What are you resting in? One of the reasons it's important that, that Jesus makes clear salvation is given by me from you is because it's something that you receive. And that's what you rest in. And so when he talks about giving eternal life, Jesus now then talks about the, the nature of the focus of the Christian life. Yes, there's all sorts of things, but don't get confused and get hung up on the wrong things. Obedience is important. It's not, it's not unimportant. Discipline is important. I could go on with many examples but we could focus on the wrong things and miss the main thing. And so Jesus is making sure that we understand, keep your eyes on me. And out of that, I will lead you. I will instruct you on what to do, how to organize your life. I myself don't know much about archery, but one of the, the things that I, I learned at some point from the few times I've tried to shoot an arrow, you know, I, I pull back the arrow and then you close one eye so that you're, you're, you can stay focused both on the arrow and on the target. Um, one of the things I read at some point was actually uh, a better technique is to open both eyes. But the problem if you do that is then either the target is blurry or uh, not just the arrow, but, but uh, certain bows have a little circle and you look through that and either the circle is blurry or the target is blurry. And so if you, oh, if you close an eye, it resolves that. But some of the experts say, 
open your eyes and make sure you see the target. And that circle is going to be blurry, but it will be clear enough that if you kind of, if, you, if all of the rest of your technique is right and you can sort of intuit where the circle is in relation to the target, see the target with both eyes open, and then uh, you will be set up for success. There seems to be this dynamic that if you close one eye, there's something about it disorients our body that we wind up having a, a wandering arm. So they say, keep both eyes open. There's a sense in which human beings, we want to understand ourselves and we want to understand God. So we close one eye to make sure we can see ourselves and we can see God. And Jesus is saying, open both eyes. <laughs> you can't take in God. Um, set your sight on me. And your life may get a little bit fuzzy for a period. Um, but as you start to follow me and order your life rightly, you'll, you'll learn to intuit in a new way. You're going to see more broadly, but you're going to see yourself in relation to me, and that's actually going to have your life properly aligned. And so the conviction here in verse 28 and 29, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will ne never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And that's the picture that we get. There are these two hands that, that come to give us life and come to take hold of us. And we say we want to receive life, but I want to trust that if I'm obedient, God will continue to watch over me. And what Jesus is saying is don't trust your obedience. Don't trust your wisdom. Don't trust the fervence of your faith. Don't trust your discipline. Look at me and trust me, and then your faith will grow. Your discipline will organize. Your fervency may be there. What is it that helps us to endure? It's not that we can make sense of God and learn his plan and do it. It's that in our inability to see and recognize God, in our ability to follow, in our wandering and being lost, he sends Jesus to call us. And he sends his own son. He comes himself who invites us to follow. And so um, the assurance that we need comes from the sense that Jesus was not just a human being who taught us, but he was the very son of God who saved us. And there's a, there's a, a moment in John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. So Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory about a, a person named Christian who's wandering through this world and needing to learn about faith and the various challenges of life. He meets an individual named Interpreter. And this individual in this particular scene is going to help Christian understand some of the deeper dynamics of life so that he can keep going along in the pilgrimage. And so in that chapter, uh, Christian sees a wall that's on fire. And there's a person who keeps pouring water on the wall, but the fire doesn't go out. And he's completely confused. What does that mean? And so the interpreter says uh, that wall is like the Christian who's meant to have this fiery, fervent faith who's come alive uh, by God's, you know, setting that person alight. But there's an enemy, this figure, the devil, who's trying to quench it as you're going through life, who's trying to take out the spirit. And he can't understand this image. And an interpreter takes him around the wall. And on the other side of the wall, there's somebody who keeps pouring oil on the wall. And what he's communicating is, look, you have this vibrant faith, but as you're going through the world, there are things that are quenching it. What is it that's going to keep it going? It's the same God who sent his spirit to you, who's the one who's sustaining you. So, so make sure that you're understanding deeply behind the scenes that what you're receiving and resting in is not anything that comes from you 
but it's what's given to you by God graciously, freely, because God wants you to have life and to know him and to receive forgiveness and to have that hope and to know that he will bring you through even death itself, just as the son passed through death on our behalf. One of the things Jesus is saying is if you're trusting yourself or teaching or um, any method, you'll never be sustained. How are we sustained? Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. This is a great encouragement, especially for the confused, those waiting in faith, those filled with doubts, to be told at this point you're standing with God is not based on your being able to pass a Bible exam or to be able to prove that you're greater than some other human being. Uh, your hope right now is that even if you're confused, the good shepherd is still your shepherd. He sent the son to you when you were not asking for him, when you did not deserve it. Jesus says, no one will snatch my sheep from my hand. And so if you know my voice, keep following, keep listening, keep going. And if you're starting to not trust yourself or the choices you've made or the world we live in, receive life from God and rest in that. And you will find at the end of the day that the good shepherd, the one who laid down his life for you, has always been the one who is leading you and feeding you and protecting you. And so therefore, in those moments of greatest confusion and least confidence, remember Jesus saying, I give eternal life, and the sheep that know my voice, no one can snatch them from my hand. So in verse 30, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's telling us something that's really hard to understand, but really helpful to know. Why can we trust Jesus? <laughs> we can't trust any human being, but we can trust God himself. Jesus is the human being sent by God to fulfill the story of scripture, uh, the one who lays down his life and the one who has taken hold of us and no one can snatch his people from his hands. So receive that, rest in that. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, if we were there in these days, we might ask that same arrogant question. Prove to us that you are the Christ. Lord, we come today perhaps with different kinds of questions, but we are fearful, we're arrogant, we're confused, we're a whole bunch of things. But we thank you that ultimately what we need to be is your people, uh, called by you, saved by grace, and given life, and that we can now have the opportunity to learn of your ways and do them, to follow. And so, Lord, help us here to uh, learn to receive and to rest, and from that, to organize our lives and to live faithfully and to trust you. Uh, but we pray that everyone here would have that gracious working of the Spirit, and uh, especially if there are any in our midst today who are confused or struggling or really discouraged, uh, we pray for a certain clarity of your voice this week. Speak to them from the Scripture. Speak to them. Show them things so that they would see, that they would hear, that they would receive, and that, uh, that our struggling brothers and sisters would find rest in you this week. And Lord, continue to lead our church and our people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.